You're listening to Changing Reality. Changing Reality, where we bend reality all across the world. Only on WQHS Radio. So hi everyone and welcome back to another episode of Changing Reality. So welcome one, welcome all. Hopefully you guys have been having a great week. If not, let us know how you've been in the comments below. So if this is your first time watching the show, where have you been all our lives? This is the place to be. But if, for all of you new viewers, Changing Reality is a show that features phenomenal people from all walks of life who are in essence changing their own reality. So we'll be hanging out and interviewing with all kinds of people from social change makers, entrepreneurs, business leaders, to even artists, musicians, and inspiring individuals from all across the world, and many of whom here from the Penn campus in a way, to hear their inspiring stories on how they not only changed the world for themselves, but how those ripple effects have affected those around them and made waves in the lives of others. So I wanted to do this show simply because I believe that there are so many people out there who do phenomenal things and make waves in the lives of those around them. And I'm passionate about uncovering these stories and learning how it is they've done that so that hopefully we'd be able to pick out the little nuggets of wisdom in those stories that will shape our own lives and will show us the paths that we are meant to live as well. And as a testament to how much I believe in the power that these stories actually have at hold, I actually founded and run a youth movement back to home called uh, Ascendance, back home in Malaysia, where I'm from, that collaborates today with not only our Malaysian Ministry of Education, but works with over 28 countries to help provide an alternative education platform for any student who wants to change their reality. So we work with students from elementary all the way up to high school through various sessions, programs, experiential learning activities, and projects that help them discover what they love doing, what they're passionate about, learn about themselves and the world around them, and start their own career while they're still in school that creates meaningful impact not just for themselves but for those around them as well and to date we've been fortunate to work with over 35,000 students in over 900 communities and have helped everyday students uh, and uh, incubate their own student-run projects and social enterprises run by students aged 8 to 25 years old and why, why we've able to be doing all of this is very simple. It's because of kind individuals who've been willing to take their time, share their experience, their stories, their expertise to provide insight and kind of shorten the learning curve of the people that we work with. And just like that, I hope that this show is that same platform for all of you out there who are trying to learn more about an industry, who are trying to learn more about where life is headed for you, in a sense, and maybe are not so sure where to go. Hopefully, this is the show that gives you that insight that you need to actually chart your own course and see where and how you can change your own reality. So with that, we'll move into our episode for today. Today, we have someone who is personally so inspiring. She's from, uh, she's a Penn alum herself, but at the same time, someone who's created so much, uh, I would say, impact on the film industry. She's a veteran broadcast and cable television executive who has uh, uh, held the post of director at so many top country uh, companies that you would not even believe. Uh, from leaving her mark at places such as uh, CBS to uh, Lorimar to many others that are today big broadcasting giants, we have this phenomenal executive who's going to share with us a little bit about her story of how from a student at Penn, she went out there to take the world of film and TV by storm. So without further ado, let's welcome Joan Harrison, our phenomenal best speaker to today's session. Uh, you Hello. Good morning. You made my day and it's, it's only seven in the morning. 
So yeah. I am so sorry about scheduling this so early for you. I'm in Los Angeles where uh, we are early risers. We wake up early and we go to bed early. So that's how it is out here. All good. I, I really appreciate that. And I do appreciate you joining in for the show. Um, I personally am someone who hates the early mornings. So the fact that you're here and already so poised and ready uh, to, to share your story is remarkable and amazing. And I can only hope to and aspire to wake up as early as you one day for, for a chat like this. Well, that as we get older, especially once I left Penn, you know, uh, you join the working world and it's like, wow, I can't sleep late anymore. So get used to it. So we're the culprit. So it's like, it's just the pen atmosphere that makes you stay up all night and sleep all day anyway, as I'm hearing it. Uh, I don't know if I slept all day. I stayed pretty busy, but um, yeah, no, look, college students need a lot of sleep. <laughs> uh, so that's a big difference. We'll take that as a as a, your seal of approval for for all of us uh, sleeping until noon yeah. from now on. But, <laughs> but thank yeah. you so much. And and interestingly enough, um, you are someone who and I didn't mention this in your in your introduction, but a really fun fact that I personally uh, thought was amazing was that you actually founded one of the main I would say entertainment clubs here at Penn. Uh, at Penn, we have. Uh, the founder of Rumors Comedy with us here today. So you actually were one of the people who pioneered it. And I personally cannot imagine the, the, them not existing at all. So <laughs> it's amazing to think that you pioneered not just, I would say, comedy in, in one aspect, but you pioneered an entire generation of people who probably didn't even know that comedy was their thing to help discover their interest in it at the very least and have a space where they could try it on on campus. So first yeah. of all, thank you for, for keeping us entertained and, and for keeping us amazed in a sense. Did you always know that comedy and, and even the world of film broadly was the thing that you wanted to go into or, or was it just a shocking, I don't know, experience at Penn that, that made you pivot into it how, how were you like when you first came to Penn really yeah yeah I, I think it was more the latter um you know look uh like so many high school students I was very involved in drama and performing um I also grew up outside of New York City and I had a passion for theater and I went to I saw at the time Broadway was very affordable and I saw every show that uh, that opened um but I figured I, I would go to law school. And it wasn't until, yeah, until I founded Bloomers, which was kind of groundbreaking in that it was the first female performing arts group in the, in the Ivy League that I realized, wow, I really like putting together a performance and a production and a project that really feeds my soul. And so I started working um, in local television in Philadelphia, I had two really good internships and I pivoted away from the law school plan and uh, decided theater wasn't as viable as on-screen media, be it film or television. So that was sort of the thinking process at the time. No, oh, amazing, amazing. Um, I know many lawyers who probably miss their calling, so we should send them all for more shows while they are in uh, campus. No, I'm serious. I, I feel like lawyer, like lawyers are some of the most hilarious people that I know. I think it's just the crowd at Penn, you know, so uh, yeah. definitely I, I, I'm grateful for the show that you visited. There's this 
story that I read about you in, in I think, um, one of Penn's articles where you actually went for this show and, and you thought, hey, you know what, um, uh, I, would like, I would like to try this out. And you applied yeah. uh, for the then all-male comedy group, in a sense, and they said no, or they, 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 or, or they yeah. said no to other amazing, talented women like you, in a way, and then right. you decided your own club tell us that story in a sense and and how did it feel at that point of time wanting to get into something but not knowing what channel or what group yeah yeah when i got to penn um I, I had trouble finding my posse and i think a lot of penn students a lot of college students feel that way right and at the time penn was only one third female it was a really different place and it it felt very old school ivy league um and I was a full scholarship kid. I didn't, I just, it was also a lot, felt very money. And I just couldn't find my, my people. And then I went to see this comedy show that Mask and Wig, which was this hundred year old male group um, put on. And it was brilliant. It was, I still remember it. It was a revelation. And I thought, wow, I would really like to do that. And so I explored um, auditioning for them, and it said in their charter they would rather disband than admit a woman. With what? Well, I think that's different. They changed the charter because this year they find that in September yeah. going to begin admitting women. But I figured, okay, they, I don't want to join a club that doesn't want me. So I um, thought about just starting a women's group, and there weren't women's groups at the time at Penn. Um, and so social media back then was handing out flyers on Locust Walk, the main thoroughfare campus. And um, 200 women showed up to that first meeting. And I realized, whoa, I'm not the only one feeling a need to connect. And um, when I said, I remember I stood up, I said, now is the time for the first female comedy group in the Ivy League. Everybody stood up and cheered. And I thought, okay, now I really have to do this. And uh, anyway, it just got better and better. And it's funny, uh, I still, uh, I've, I've gone back to Penn in the past five years where I've had more personal time to establish the Alumni Association of Bloomers. And it's been such a privilege to meet the fierce young women who continue to find their people in this group. You know, there. I think there's a lot to be said for affinity groups within diverse communities. I mean, even professional organizations have affinity groups um, for gay employees, for, you know, uh, racial groups. I think those groups are important because we all, we, we, we have so, we find so much community. We, we rightly honor who we are and why not celebrate that and connect? You, know, you, you can join the wider world while honoring your individual attributes. So I think that's important as we go through our careers to remember that who our distinct voice brings so much to the chorus. And we don't just want to, yes, we, we want to blend in, but we don't want to um, leave what makes us so extraordinary. So it was a great experience and it continues to be a wonderful experience that gives back to me personally still in meeting these, the next generation of bloomers and uh, how just incredible they are. No, that's actually very, very beautifully said because I feel like many of us are struggling in a way or to define exactly the right space for us and, mm -hmm. and 
and sometimes that overlap sex with like a particular group or a particular right. segment of, of a larger industry that we're looking at and, and sometimes even just the support and, and the infrastructure in place to support those things are, yeah. and are more important than we think of yeah you bet and it's not just gender it's it's your malaysian culture it's my culture i mean we all see things through different lens and it's it's a beautiful thing when you realize your lens sheds so much insight on somebody else's view viewpoint and that's why companies are, right now are in this great renaissance of looking for people with with differences i think it's a great thing i, I you know i hear many white men in america complain about it because you know they feel a lot of them feel like they're at the short end of the stick right now but you know they've, they've had the long end for for millennia so sorry I, I i'm not that all that sympathetic um sorry if i offended anyone with that but i i do think there's great value in diversity and it just makes things better I'm glad to hear that. And you're definitely one of the reasons we can thank that we all have a little bit more of an equal share of what's going on out there. I actually have a picture from one of your first few performances with Bloomers. Let's see if I can get this up. Um, yeah. Can you see? Yeah. Yes. <laughs> so, the screen just blanked out. Yeah, there it is. Okay. Oh, that's so funny. Yes, this is from... Yeah, the, the first two shows, and that's in the top left, that's me on Locust Walks after selling out all our shows. Um, yeah, and the second picture beneath it, some of these, it took famous women, from, it was a mashup of, um, say that's Marilyn Monroe, singing about the Monroe Doctrine and Charlie Brown singing about Brown versus Board of Education and Carmen Miranda about the Miranda ruling. So we had a lot of fun. Um, we wrote original music and uh, it, it, I have to say some of our comedy was very clever, really cutting edge. Well, one of the things that I'm very curious about is how do you come up with like like whenever I watch a show or something, as you said, it's very clever. It's it, it's it's very well thought out in a sense, and especially with with, with the stories that you kind of told. Uh, just in looking at that one picture, there's obviously a lot of thought and and a lot of I would say a yeah. dash of wit, a dash of love, a dash of uh, compassion that goes into kind of this whole pot that, that creates this, the, the stage performance that we all enjoy. Do you remember what was the process like for you and in, in, in your passe at that point of time to come up with something like I this, especially when, when it was your first show, first ever female show, there's a lot of pressure on you guys. How, yeah. how did you even go about finding your voice and finding that structure to it? Great question. Um, you know, I learned some of the rules of comedy. There are some basic rules, like the rule oh, of... Oh, no, comedy is rules? Joking, go ahead, yeah. yeah. There are a few basic ones, like the rule of three, meaning you 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 establish a pattern and then you break it. And, the, um, and then I realized it was, it was putting things out of context. And that was really helpful. I, I tried to keep the bar high so it wasn't just about silly wordplay and... I didn't like parodies very much. I wanted original music and um, and we also got together once a week in my three bedroom uh, 
dorm room in the lower quad, I would make heaps of popcorn, I remember, on my hot plate. And we would just sit there, a bunch of us, just eking out comedy bits. It was really a lot of fun. And, and uh, I didn't realize at the time, but that's how it's done. That was our writer's room. And that's it. You riff off of each other. And we did have one woman who, who remains one of my closest friends. And she was a comic genius. And that was really helpful. So she just has a very odd way of looking at the world and she finds humor in really bizarre things. And it was a lot of fun. So again, diversity, like she saw the world differently and that was very helpful. So um, that's how we got started. And we also back then spent the year crafting our show. Now Bloomers does a show every semester, but we felt, I felt like we needed to really put our very best foot forward for the first couple of years. And the first 10 years, I think, Bloomers only did one show a year, so we had the, the gift of time. No, very well said. And you also mentioned earlier that after kind of this amazing experience throughout college, doing these many different sketches and, and these shows and, and these productions, you went on and got these two wonderful internships that kind of brought you slowly into the wider film and TV industry. This is a hot topic I feel now that we're in the summer and every Penn student is thinking about their internship in either remorse or joy and, and planning for next year already Some for some of the friends that I know. How many times when we think about this, I feel like we're so much more fortunate that we can Google and we can email and we can reach out to people much easily now. Mm -hmm. But for you at that point of time, figuring out, okay, I like this. This has been my experience in college doing this. I want to go and see how the world is would interpret or, or what the world has for me in a sense. How did you go about finding these internships that, that would go and change your life in, in, in hindsight? And how did you know if you were making the right decision to commit your time there? I mean, Again, right. from law to something else, of course, there's got to be like finding the best option if you're going to make a risk like, and changing things that you're doing. Right. So how are you sure in a sense? Well, you know, you use words like sure and best. And I don't know if that's the benchmark that we should be using. You can't know if it's the best ever and you can't always be sure, but you can try. And the fact is, if it's not right, you can just zig and zag. I mean, the only thing in life that, that you have to be sure about, and that is completely unchangeable, is having a child. Everything else is changeable. I'm not recommending that you- I give the child back, but everything else, you know. <laughs> but I'm not recommending you go into marriage or, or serious endeavors or even a very serious um, job with the idea that you can just leave. But, the idea that it has to be the best and you have to be sure, I don't think serves us. I think you go in, you try it on, and if it's if it's not right, you do something else. If it, you And you see what, what appeals to you about a situation and you build on that. But best and right, I don't know. It, that doesn't feel, feel like it will serve a student. You know, oh, gosh, you're, you're you're breaking my heart here and breaking the hearts of many very idealistic friends that I have on on this topic. So, so what was the experience for you finding something that you know would lead you to the next thing in a sense, at the very least? Um, I, I honestly don't recall how I found these internships. Part of it might might have been through pen or word of mouth, and also at the time this wasn't a popular career choice. It was unconventional. Really. 
Okay. Yeah, I, I had everybody said to me, what are you doing? You know, like, go to law school? What are you, crazy? And um, I, I think I also mentioned when we first met Harsha that I come from um, a poor family and I really wanted to build security for myself. That was really important to me, financial security, because I didn't have it as a child and I really wanted that. And um, so that played into my thinking process as well. And look, I think it does with a lot of pens, with a lot of, not just pen students, a lot of young people. Like how do I, how do I build a secure foundation? Um, and I did like these early internships and I did decide to kind of stick with the plan. And if it didn't work out for me in a couple of years, I could always go back to school. So again, it's not best. It's just, okay, I'm going to try this and I'll, I'll see if, I'll see how it feels. Makes sense. Makes sense. And I know that as you were like you, I think after that you, you took a role at Telepictures, if I'm correct with yeah, pronouncing perfect. the name. Yes. Uh, yeah. You were a director of development there. Tell us a bit about how you went about number one, securing the role and what was the experience like going into this industry right now, full time, like committing all your time there in this role in a sense. I think you're the director of development, if I recall right, in a sense. Right. But, and I actually started um, with the company as uh, in a position they called the, their intern, which was kind of a misnomer. It was a paid job. And it was that was really how I got my foot in the door. Weirdly, they had, the, the CEO um, had gone to Harvard and placed an ad in the Harvard Crimson. And a friend of mine at Harvard saw the ad and told me about it. And <laughs> that's how I got that job. And it was an unusual two-year program, the first year in New York and the second in Los Angeles, where I'd never been. But I made the commitment. And, of course, I ended up staying in Los Angeles, as you said, as director of development. Um, and it was a great experience. Uh, and, and some of my dearest friends... I met at that particular job. It's funny, we're all lifelong friends. And in fact, my CEO, that same CEO is now a, a huge executive based out of Abu Dhabi. And he and I just Zoomed a couple of weeks ago. We're dear friends. And um, talk about finding your posse. These were just great people. And you know, you'll find in your career, as you go from job to job, you will, you will make key friendships here and there, but this was very unusual in that. I made many, and we're all really close to this day. So it was an unusual situation. It was kind of a startup, so we were all all in, all of us. And I think that bonded us to some extent, and, it, and the company was phenomenally successful. So it was right place, right time, a modicum of luck, um, and just um, some real hard work. And I do remember when I started working, I was really tired. I wasn't used to, you know, getting up early, getting on the subway, going or walking to my office, trekking into Midtown. I was exhausted. And that was a real switch for me. And somebody, an older person said to me, oh yeah, you'll get used to that. And I think part of the backlash we're seeing now about going back to the office five days a week speaks to that. People realize, how much energy and time it takes just to commute. 
And is, is there a return on that kind of significant human investment? So uh, I do remember that. And I share that only because if any of your younger listeners experience that, it's normal. <laughs> okay. I, I definitely know a few people who need to hear that, like specifically myself yeah. included at times. Um, no, but that, that is amazing in a way. And your early role, I think um, you did so many things right from the get-go that, that was, I, I could only imagine that most people wish they could they could experience from developing kind of the news and and the different show formats to I think yeah. eventually yeah. the next girl you you also develop and sold them to to kind of like these studios and all of that yeah in all of these things in a way um you went from learn from number one in your in kind of at pen crafting the things themselves and and, and these the these theater shows in a sense to the the tv and, and kind of film industry which is a bit more of a different format it's a lot more um or at least from what i've heard it's not the same thing you you've got to relearn some of the basics in a sense there's a different kind of rhythm to it in a way for you in a sense how do you go about figuring out that rhythm and, and was it as the easy of the switch as, as you expected or were there or what was kind of the most unexpected thing about the the TV and film kind of format or industry that you had to learn from the get-go? Hmm. Well, first, being able to sell is really important. I think that's important in any job, really. And when I say sell, I don't necessarily mean it literally, although in my case, it was important. I mean um, selling your ideas, whether, yeah. whether internally to your, super, your, your management or, in my case, to television networks, being able to express an idea in a very appealing way succinctly is, is a critical professional skill. I don't care what you do, it's a critical skill. So that was something I was able to tap into early on and learn from some very talented people. Uh, and I still really enjoy pitching ideas to this day. So. I, I do it in, I, I'm very comfortable selling. I do it in a more conversational way. I try to bring the, um, the listener in on the process. So it's more, of a, it's almost a conversation rather than a, a speech or a, or a, a you know, just, yeah. A word vomit of a kind yeah. of. Yeah. And um, I love it. I really enjoy it. And that was really important to learn. That was probably the best thing I learned at that early on. Well, now I'm torn. Now I want to hear like your best versus your worst pitch in a sense, or, or share oh, with us or pitch to our audience in a sense, what will probably be the favorite project that you worked on so that we can just take notes and, and, and scribble them down as you speak. Oh, there are so many. And I've worked on unscripted television ideas, a lot of scripted stuff. Um, I love pitching. And sometimes, you know, especially with the scripted material, very often writers are expected to pitch their own material. And in my view, writers more often than not you know, are really good expressing themselves, are better expressing themselves on the page than in the room. So I always had the benefit of saying to a writer, you know what, I love, I'm happy to do this for you. You don't have to feel pressured to pitch it. I'll do it on your behalf. They were like, really? That would be great. So uh, 
Yeah, that, that's a very helpful thing. Okay. What was the, the, I know, I, for me at the very least, whenever I do a presentation, which again is different from selling an idea or similar in some aspects of selling an idea, I always, like, there have been presentations where, I don't know, I just look at everyone's face in the room and you're like, this is not going well, or like, they're not getting the idea. Have you ever had those moments in a sense? And maybe tell us one or two of the stories of ideas that maybe you pitched and you didn't think, hmm, you know what, maybe, maybe they're not getting it, but it turned out well, or it turned out the other way around. Tell us one of your your, Usually, your favorite pitching. Yeah, that's a great question. Usually you can read or a room. Yeah. Um, I remember once being in a pitch. It was for a project starring Jessica Biel, of all things. And I, uh, my boss at the time was pitching it. And I could tell it just wasn't. And he's a good pitcher, too. But in this particular case, it just wasn't working. And he didn't read the room. And he just kept going and going and going and going. And it was, I was at the end, I, I felt awful um, for him because he's such, he's so good. And he knew he bombed out and look, it happens to the best of us. Um, but generally speaking, um, you can read the room. Now, what you can't read is what's going on behind the scenes. Oh, they already have enough comedies Oh, they already have a, a pitch set in an advertising agency. Oh, they already have, um, they don't have any room on their schedule. You know, those are things we can't know. And like most things in life, you can't control it. But generally speaking, you can read the room. Makes sense, makes sense. And you, and I, and I feel like we live in a very strange time now where we everyone reads like the latest Netflix press release on we're looking for these these kind of films to produce in this time and everyone's got a lot more of an active voice of what they want yes from your experiences of, of being in these positions of kind of like the middle ground between where ideas come in and, and where they're going to to these big studios and all that how do you feel the audience's voice or what role do you think the audience's voice has in kind of what's being made out there because everyone knows oh you know it's supply and demand if, you, if people like this this is going to come out but that's not always the case of, like when we actually yeah. watch it so, so like for, from your point of view in that room what what goes on well it's true i mean networks now you know they they listen to the chatter they they follow twitter they they want to know um what their viewers are saying some much more than others uh yeah, no, that is absolutely true. And that is a difference. I mean, look, back when I was doing it, we got the, the overnights, as we said, you know, the overnight ratings. Every morning we woke up to those and we knew how we did. Netflix doesn't reveal their ratings. Um, it's different. It's a different world. Uh, and, you know, we, from those of us who grew up in a much more traditional broadcasting cable environment, we've been sitting back wondering, how is this working? How is this company spending gazillion dollars on every project? And there are so many of them. They don't have ratings. We understand it's a subscription model, of course, but how is that sustainable? And now we're seeing maybe it's not. So um, it's a different world. It is. And yes, what the viewer thinks does matter. Absolutely. I mean, we used to call it water cooler conversation, which 
as you may know, references yield water cooler in the corner of the office where people would gather to get a glass of water and they talk about what, what they watched the night before on the broadcast networks. Um, things are, and that, that exists, you know, to some extent on social media, you know, you've got to watch the latest money heist or you've got to watch your things that are, you, or, you know, the new Morgan or whatever it is. Um, that's the water cooler and that matters. We'll keep an eye on on the chatter. Then I guess that's the yeah. that's the indicator for what's happening next. You you also specifically like you were VP of miniseries at CBS. If I'm not, miniseries are crazy right now. I feel like every show I watch only has six episodes, and it, and it makes yeah. me awfully depressed. But I understand that, that that there's probably a reason to it. I miss my 26 episode shows, but it's fine. Uh, <laughs> But but that's also a different crafting process in a sense. Yes, very these larger films and all of that. From your experience working in the field, that specifically, how do these miniseries differ um, from everything else? And honestly, how does someone pick whether their idea should be in one format or another? I mean, as a viewer, we're we're, we're dumb. We don't know what what are the creative decisions that go into this. Please enlighten us on on why we have three Hobbit movies, but only six episodes of. Right. Show that I love. Yeah, go ahead. Well, great question. Look, obviously a lot of, a lot of it is financial. And if you have a hit, you want another hit. And no better way to do that than with a franchise, right? But it's interesting you said you missed your 26 episode series. Those are hard to come by now. Uh, but when they hit, they really hit big and it's the gift that keeps on giving, right? Um and it, is, it can be, and you know more than you think as a viewer, how many times have you tuned into the second season of, of a limited series uh, and thought, wow, this feels attenuated. This, I wish they didn't do this. So that happens too. I mean, I just tuned into a second series of an award-winning series and my husband and I looked at each other and we're like, why, why couldn't they just leave it well enough alone? We, we didn't need this. So um look it takes real experience i recently curated a library of book titles where i said okay here are your limited series these are the movies and i think there may be a long life series in this particular book so it just it, it depends is the answer on the characters on the opportunities on the situations and then sometimes you can craft new situations that are not in the source material if you're basing something on source material. So it really differs. I myself love the limited series format because you can explore plot and character in a way you cannot in a film. So I'm very partial to it. I love um, tucking into a limited series. It's a great joy. I'm in the middle of one now and I can't wait to get back to it tonight. Uh, to, to, I think we're gonna finish it out tonight. So um, I think it's a great format. Okay, now I've got to ask you, what are your like top three recommendations of what to watch right now? In the sense? Right now. Hmm. Right now, or, or really, right now and three all time. Let's do that, yeah. Oh my gosh. Well, right now we're watching, I mentioned the new se season of the da great Danish political thriller, Borgen. We're watching um, Tehran on Apple TV, which is, fabulously plotted it's it's with Glenn Close this season it's terrific um 
we also just finished the winning season, which spoke to me personally. It's about the um, the late LA Lakers, the basketball uh, empire, and it was so well done. I really I we enjoyed it so much that we then watched the four part documentary on Magic Johnson. All fantastic. It was great to see the real people after watching the dramatization. That was a lot of fun. <laughs> Uh, but boy, there's so much great content. Oh my goodness. I mean, they keep calling this the golden age and in many ways there, it is. I mean, you throw money at the screen and you get some great stuff. So gosh, I could go on and on about the great things we've watched. It, it's just, and now we're also watching prehistoric planet also on Apple TV. Apple's really come up strong again, endless money. Um, and that's just gorgeous to look at on a big screen. So there's, I mean, it, it's just crazy. And I think everyone around the world experienced the glories of the golden age of streaming during the lockdown in particular. Yeah, apologies on that. My camera just decided to swap and kill itself for a moment. No um, <laughs> but no, I, I agree. So. I'll come back to kind of your three all-time favorites in a second. Uh, but one of the things that I like when you were giving those recommendations was you said something like, this series is really, really kind of like well-plotted. And then, and I think that that's something that we credit to to writers, especially on coming up with, with literal masterpieces that are not only concise as a, as, as, a, as a story that runs throughout episodes, that runs throughout the series, but also leave each episode as biting and gripping as possible that makes you want to tune in for the next. So however they do it is amazing. So I know that you actually spent some time as a screenwriter. I think you worked on, on a bunch of different products, uh, projects in a way that uh, from rom-coms to, I think, uh, screenplays, and you were part of the Writer's Guild of America, I know, at, at a point of time. Tell us a little bit about how the screen, or what are the things we don't see that goes into kind of the screenwriting process? Oh boy. Well, what you don't see is a wall full of post-its. <laughs> okay. You know, where that's how things are plotted. You don't see that. It's okay. literally you know, where you're moving things around. And you don't see the character arcs. Um, and descriptions for each character and wh where you want that character to begin and go to. Uh, you know, th this, it, it, this is the heavy lifting of screenwriting. It's not actually sitting down and writing dialogue. It's, it's laying the foundation for the story. And I, I think it's incredibly difficult. And that's where the real talent comes in. It's not so much crafting the, the words as it is crafting the, the story. We often talk about writer's block when it comes to novelists and, and, and people who write books in a sense. How, what does writer's block look like for screenwriters and, and how have you ever faced it? What did you do then in a way? Yeah, uh, you know, I'm not, I, I was never employed steadily as a writer. So that's a tough, question for me. Um, but sure, everybody, I, I think most writers face it at one time or another, and they've got to power through it. It's very hard. It's, you know, writing is hard. It, and writing, you know, it's the classic line, writing is rewriting. You're just constantly revising and 
And then very often writers get replaced on projects and that's heartbreaking and hard to take. You just got to keep going. It's like, in a way, it's like being an actor, you know, it's, it's a lot of rejection. And then, and when you hit, it can be fantastic, but it's, it's very hard work, very hard work. I, I, I bow my feet, uh, whatever. I, I have great respect for writers, of course. You were also a literary agent, I think, for a while, who kind of help facilitate bringing those screenplays and all to light uh, in, in kind of contacting the right studios and the right people. Um, tell us a little bit about what, like, like, that's a very interesting role to be in because you have all of these hopes and dreams right. that you literally carry in a sense, in a way. Tell yeah. us a little bit about what, what goes into coming up with an idea and actually seeing it on screen, in a sense, from, well, from the, the point of view of going out there and, and right. selling it to a production company. Well, agents don't necessarily come up with the idea. Agents are the glue that connects the idea maker, i.e. the writer or the show creator to the buyer. And, um, I, you know, they help the writer sometimes with the pitch and with crafting a project that can sell. So they can add elements to it. In other words, they can say, you know, this would be a great actor to to attach to this project. Let's see if we can make that happen. Or I have this book writer, would you want to adapt this? I have this actress who wants to, you know, produce it and star in it. Would you be interested? So th that's what we call packaging a project. And uh, so agents do a lot of that. And agents have um, become a lot more powerful and then less so through the through the years and it's also a, a job you can be an agent and build your own business for decades you know so it, it can be a very stable position within a um a fluctuating industry okay cool um so in a way you've, you've kind of seen it all in the sense from the writer's room to that intermediary yeah. place to to actually at the the production houses in a sense what has been in, in all of these different stages and all of these different roles, what has been the toughest role that you've had so far? Hmm. The toughest role was managing a very difficult boss. Ooh, that's a good answer. Elaborate, go ahead, yeah. Yeah, I had, it was my favorite job it was when I was at CBS, but I had a very difficult boss who, um, Spread, he was under tremendous pressure, which he spread amongst all the people who reported to him. We knew when he was in a bad mood, we all said, stay away. I mean, it, it was like, it was, we spent a lot of energy managing him. And uh, as talented as he was, and he was extraordinary, you know, he, it, it, that was the hardest thing I've done. It, 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 it hurt my soul at times. And um, he finally, um, there was a reckoning. But uh, yeah, that, that was the most difficult part. That is very fascinating because again, the industry itself is something that 
at least now I've heard is it has a huge amount of pressure on it. It, it works like clockwork at times and, and everyone's got to play their parts to, to, to see that output. And if not, you've got a hundred angry fans at your door um, complaining about every kind of misstep in the way. How do you balance all of that pressure in this career in a sense and, and, and still be the amazing, fun and phenomenal person you are today without cracking under that pressure? Uh, it's a, you know, people have different coping skills. Um, you've got to stay rooted in your, not just yourself and belief in yourself, but also in the people who really care for you, whether it's family, certainly friends, colleagues. I, I, I have, I have had fantastic colleagues, men and women who've just been super supportive and remain dear friends. Um, and I always had a rich life outside of work. I always exercised and took care of myself, always. I always um, did um, extracurricular organizational work where I was giving back to some something or someone. And that helped keep me grounded. Uh, I, I always tried to maintain, I, I wouldn't exactly say it was a balance because it's hard to balance. You're spending a lot more time in, at work than you were at anything else. But I always had outside interests. And as I moved from job to job, those would remain, my friends would remain. I always felt kind of rooted. I also, also always enjoyed a, a rich home life and a beautiful home. And um, so those things really matter. You know, you, if, put, Putting, uh, pinning all your hopes and dreams and your your self worth on your on your on your work is is too precarious. I wouldn't recommend it for anyone. And there are too many things outside of your control. And eventually, you'll get you know your your ass handed back to you in some way. So that's dangerous. You want to try to stay a little balanced and remember that you have people who really care for you outside of your professional um, trajectory. No, beautifully said. Tell like, and, and it's, it's especially like, I feel right now is kind of exit the pandemic. Everyone has had this, this whiplash of, of confusion in a sense of we, we had time at home, which was extremely stressful. And then now we're back in the office and we thought it'd get a bit better, but, but it's not necessarily um, the way there, there's no going back to exact normal now that we've had a taste of something different. No? And then yeah. we're all balancing that a little bit. You, you mentioned a few things that was, that, that was very nice in that answer that number one, it's about having a, a friends, family that, that you can turn to in a sense that is really important. And I just wanted to spend a bit of time on that because you also connected it, or at least earlier you mentioned that a lot of the people you met and you worked with have actually become great lifelong friends in a way. How do you go about building and more importantly, maintaining those relationships with those important to you? Because again, fast-paced industry, yeah. it's easy to get caught up in a sense. How do you build and cultivate those relationships so that it's not always about the work, but even from there, you you convert <laughs> kind of the people from your work to, to important people in your life. Well, you have to do it mindfully. You know, um, you have to put some energy into it and, and checking, you know, you have to check in and not just say, oh, I need to talk to Scott. You actually say, okay, I'm going to call right now or I'll send a meaningful text. Um, just say, say people want to hear, I'm thinking of you. They want to hear that they're thought of. 
So some, just that simple act is a connecting point. And um, I think during the lockdown, we all saw who mattered to us and, and who was, I don't want to use the word dispensable, but just who wasn't giving back to us in the same way. And those people kind of went by the wayside almost out of necessity. Uh, so it's investing in the relationships that matter. And it's not a huge investment. And it's always okay to say, I'm sorry, I haven't been in touch. You've been on my mind. And when somebody is on your mind, just put it out into the world. Don't hold it in. Just quickly pick up your device and say, hey, you know, that's it. it, 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 it it's it, it's pretty simple. And uh, I also have gotten, as I've gotten older, and this is the gift of age, I'm much more attuned to relationships that, that are reciprocal. And I tend to invest in those a lot more than the ones that tended to be more one-sided. Yeah, no, I guess all of us also, I think, like we we fail in either one of those aspects of, of having the, that 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 relationship where many times, especially when you said if someone's on your mind, just reach out and text them. Yeah. I feel like sometimes the, that that simple thing we we yeah. often fail to do it. Absolutely, it's it's really simple. I, I mean, and I because I like writing, I used to send a lot of written notes, like in snail mail. And I every Monday I would go into the office and think, okay, what did I do over the weekend that was really fun? And I would scribble a note. I used to keep postcards and stamps, all old school. And people would always say, oh, my gosh, I loved getting something in the mail from you. That was crazy. <laughs> so just a little tip. Like every Monday, I'd set aside like 15 minutes and just jot out some notes to people I'd spent time with over the weekend. And, and that also was helpful. And to this day, I, I, I know a lot of people do this, but I'm always sending photos to people. Like when we're together, I take a photo, I make sure I, when I thank them electronically, now I include a photo. So, you know, those little things matter. Oh, and I like, I like receiving mail. I think maybe I should do that for some of my team members. Like just be like the next time I see them, like, here's a letter. They'll, they'll lose their mind. So just like mail them a letter. But no, that, that is really, really like, like, that's a really good idea. And also I think, again, it's just about being mindful about those relationships and, and, and 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 sending that photo, taking that extra step in a sense beyond this surface level connections. Well, the other thing that you mentioned that I also thought was very fascinating was giving back and, and carving out that time to give back. You give back a lot to the pen community at the very least, um, and I'm and I'm sure much more than than it's beyond Googleable comprehension. Um, like I saw that there's actually a writing scholarship by the Kelly's Writers House. Yeah. Thank you for, for all of the writers out there. I know you're on the board of, I think, uh, some of the alumni uh, kind of associations, especially Bloomers and a couple of other comedy groups. Why is giving it back important in a sense? I mean, you're you're amazing. You're successful. Very very wise in the industry. We're we're dumb, boring kids. Why 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 help us? Second, because it's it roots you in the world. You're mm -hmm. like in giving in giving you get so much more back. I, I know that sounds cliche, but it really is true. You get perspective, if nothing else, and you probably get a lot more than that. It, it, it builds your heart. It, 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 it will make you, it will give you empathy. It will give you, um, it will sharpen your values. It's so important, particularly as America uh, goes through uh, 
massive changes and feels particularly polarized, it's all the more important. And, and I think that that should be a main, I, I wish we had a public service uh, requirement in this country, whether it was during a gap year, or I think everything would be better if we had that, but we don't and we won't. So giving back is really important. I almost think it's part of being a, it's, it's almost like a passport to your human citizenship. <laughs> you know, like that's, that's you, you kind of owe that to the world. That's my view. So I think it's critical. No, I agree wholeheartedly. Just the other day, I was, I was waiting in line like a McDonald's and, and something like that. Was, and the, they had one of these machines, you know, the one that brings the food up and down. It was it was broken. So they just tied a cardboard box by a string and threw it down in a sense. In the pool. And I was just thinking, what a stressful job this is in a sense. And I thought the world would be so much more of a better place if every single human had to do like a 30 minutes uh, front facing customer job. <laughs> like in their week in a sense like if i worked at the mcdonald's for 30 minutes a week i'd be a much nicer person to like everyone that i meet in a sense and i can only assume that's the same for everyone so so maybe we've got to make that happen maybe we've got to talk to some policy writers in a sense and at least have that community service element because yeah <laughs> definitely food for thought uh i also just wanted to talk a little bit about about the work you're doing right now you you're more of an advisory role right now you consult to a lot of um the decision makers in the field in this industry what do you think like like from your and, and you've seen it all in the way you you've seen from cable to, to netflix and its rise and fall right now and or rise and plateau right now what do you think is something that these producers these uh, ceos of these companies need to know and all of that and from the experiences that you're providing and bringing well, I think they're pretty smart, so I don't know if they need to know anything from me, but <laughs> um, I think, you know, just generally speaking, when something looks too good to be true, it probably is. <laughs> and it's just, again, the sustainability of their business plan is questionable. What do they need to know to me? I don't know. I, I they're pretty good at evaluating material too. That's why they've gotten to where they are. So that's what I do. But um, I would just say, uh, you know, trying to maintain excellence is hard in any industry. They're really trying, and it's not only about money, although money's really helpful. It's it's just about identifying talent and that can be hard to do okay so for all of the talent here watching today's show who are like i want to get into this industry i want to be like you in a sense who are very uncertain of where they should hit in a sense what do you think makes talent exceptional makes them recognizable whether they're and, and not necessarily for the actors and the YouTubers looking to get noticed, but for the screenwriters, for right. the one of the directors in a sense, what do they have to do to be the people that the industry needs right now? Well, I, I would say um, have a really distinctive point of view or, uh, or voice. Be different, be distinctive, be, uh, don't be, don't blend in. You know, 
be uh, offer something different and new, something that is uniquely yours. I think that's critical. Uh, it seems that content now is taking us into worlds we don't know, worlds that are new and different and things we couldn't have imagined. Give us that. Explore that part, part of yourself. That's, that's how you tell your stories is, is unlike a, a way, any way we've seen. That's what's in demand. So I would say that. And I would also say that I've yet to meet a Penn student who, who wanted to be in the entertainment industry who hasn't been able to make that move. <laughs> I say, okay. yeah, Penn students are remarkable. And then we've had, they've had an incredible um, success story in entertainment. So join, join that and, and take heart in that fact that you too are part of that community and you can, you can make your mark here. All right. Amazing. Thank you so much for being on this show. You are obviously one of those people who I could talk to for hours and still have hundreds of questions that would hopefully solve all of my life issues because you're just extremely wise and experienced. So I really appreciate you taking the time on this show. And I only hope that the last hour has been as meaningful for you as it's been for me and our viewers. So thank you once again for joining us. And Harsha, I would say to you personally, go for it. You are really good at what you do. And you're as good as anyone I've ever met. So I look forward to watching your star soar. Well, it's very kind. And with that, I, I've got to send my love once more to you, especially for waking up at 7 a.m. to to still be here and still compliment me on stuff. So appreciate appreciate really all the effort and love. And thank you once again for not just being on the show, but for all of the attention and, and kindness that you shower the community at Penn with. So we really appreciate it. And to our audience at Penn, make sure you guys um, do justice to our alumni and use the resources that you have around us, that you guys take the lessons from today's session and go there and find a way to make your mark on the industry as well and with that thank you everyone for joining us on today's episode of changing reality if you like today's show make sure to tune in again next thursday at 10 p.m as always and with that let's sign off you're listening to changing reality changing reality where we bend reality all across the world only on wqhs radio